Welcome to Sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Will you join me in a prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your grace at work in our lives and your goodness to us. Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us now as we open the word, that you would glorify Christ in our midst and in our lives. I pray that this time in the scriptures would lead to gospel proclamation and life transformation for us, for our city, and for our world. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. As you already heard, we're picking up from our scene last week in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is at a dinner party. He's at the house of a prominent Pharisee. He, he's with other Pharisees and religious leaders. This was a high society, high octane gathering of power brokers. And, and Jesus is looking on. He's watching people as they're you know, taking the best seat, trying to strategize how to uh, up their status, uh, trying to jockey for position. You know, dinner parties is where you come with a game plan. You have an idea of who you want to sit next to. Maybe you've got a line prepared in advance. Man, if I drop this insightful line with gravity at the key moment, I am sure to impress people. I'm sure to turn heads and it's going to be good. Well, Jesus is watching all this happen. And first he tells them, you know, you shouldn't be looking to take the best seat. You should take the worst seat. And he starts to flip their values upside down. And then in verse 12, he drops this line. He says, you know who you should invite to your dinners? You shouldn't invite your friends. You shouldn't invite your family or your colleagues or your rich neighbors. You should invite the poor the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Can you imagine? Jesus is basically saying, you're going about this feast all wrong. The people here are wrong. Your status seeking is wrong. He's saying that all the people who should be here aren't, and all the people who shouldn't be here are. I mean, I've sat through some awkward dinner table moments but nothing comes close to this. Have you ever had someone come over to your house for a dinner party and it's almost like they've taken it upon themselves to point out all your flaws and how terribly you're doing as a host? The chicken is overcooked. The decor is all wrong. Why isn't Uncle Gerald here? It's not a party without Uncle Gerald. Uh, do you need help in the kitchen? It kind of looks like you need some help in the kitchen there. You know, we've all witnessed awkward dinner table moments, but, but nothing comes close to this. I mean, in the long, t intense pause that must have followed, a man quips up. He says in a grandiose kind of way in verse 15, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Maybe that was his one-liner that, that he had prepared that he was going to drop to impress everyone else there. You know, it's a good religious remark that might, you know, turn our attention to more spiritual things and ease the tension a bit. And Jesus takes this remark and, and rolls with it. He 
says, all right, let me, let me tell you about a feast. And he shares a parable. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to camp out in this parable to really understand what's going on, what Jesus is saying in the parable of the great banquet. And we're going to consider two things that come out of it. We're going to consider a word of warning, and we're going to consider a word of grace. A word of warning and a word of grace. Let's start with the parable. In verse 16, we read, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. In those days when you held a banquet, the custom was that you would send out two invitations. So first there was the general invite to let people know, hey, uh, there's a banquet coming. I'm hosting a banquet. Get ready. Because you need and you needed to, to know to get a reply back. Okay, yeah, I'll come. When it's ready, I'll come. Because you needed to know how much food to make, right? Am I slaughtering a chicken, two chickens, a goat, a calf? that kind of thing. And then in the day before takeout, in the day before conventional ovens and microwaves, it, it took time to prepare these things. You were, you were slaughtering your own meat. So the host would need to know. Then there would be a second invitation that will go out to let people know, okay, the banquet's ready. You know, and before emails and text messaging, you sent your servant out in person and they let people know. That's verse 17. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. And here we start to get into the word of warning. Because the servant goes out with his good news, that the time for the banquet has come. And then something completely unexpected happens. Look at verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. They all alike began to make excuses. You see, that's what you do when you're invited to a function that you don't want to go to. And, and when you don't have a legitimate reason to miss it, what you do is you make an excuse. You never say, I don't want to come. That, that's just, you know, too overtly impolite. You say, oh man, you know, I wish I could come. My brother's in town and I absolutely need to spend every single waking moment with him so I won't be able to attend. Sorry. They make excuses. The word is repeated three times in our text. Verse 18, the first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Now, the reason this is an excuse and not a reason is because no one buys a field without seeing it first. Nobody does that. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey, who spent 40 years teaching in the Middle East, says this. He says, no one buys a field in the Middle East without knowing every square foot of it like the palm of his hand. The springs, the wells, stone walls, trees, paths, and anticipated rainfall are all well known long before discussion of the purchase is even begun. What might at first sight have seemed like legitimate excuses really aren't. Look at verse 19. The second one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. It's the same thing here. This guy claims to have purchased five yoke of oxen. That A yoke is a pair. That's ten oxen. That's, that's a serious investment. 
And he hasn't tried them yet? No. No way. You check your oxen. Do they walk straight? Are they healthy? Are, are their hooves intact? Right? It's like buying a used car sight unseen. It's ridiculous. You wouldn't do it. With both of these guys in a peasant society, you do not become a successful landowner by buying land and livestock you haven't seen before. No. You're shrewd. You research. You rigorously inspect. You have worked out all the fine print long before you even think about making an offer. This last excuse is just humorous. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, everyone hearing Jesus would know that these excuses were bogus. And in that culture, with a high value on hospitality and in a shame-based, honor-based culture, this would be so deeply insulting to the host. The last man didn't even ask to be excused. He said, I just got married, as if he didn't know he was going to get married when he first got the invite. Like, what happened there? Right? Had, had the wedding been planned when he said, yes, I'm going to come? Or did it just come together really quickly? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, yeah, I'm getting married. Oops, for, forgot about that one when I said, yes, I'll come. Unlikely. These excuses are just that. They're excuses. And they would be deeply insulting to the host. Now, this would be so obvious to Jesus' hearers. And as we hear this parable, uh, you know, we need to make the jump. What is Jesus really talking about here? Is he talking about a dinner party? No. He's talking about something far greater and far more important. He's talking about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus has come onto the scene announcing to Israel, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. He's been teaching people about the kingdom. He's been demonstrating its presence through healings and through casting out evil spirits. He is the servant of God who's now come onto the scene telling people, come back to God for everything is now ready. The first invitation for God's people to the kingdom came through the prophets in the Old Testament. They had announced to Israel that God was preparing a banquet. Check out Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 9. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken in that day. They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saves us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The invitation had come. The prophets had let Israel know, hey guys, God is preparing a feast. He's going to redeem us and he's going to redeem the world. He's going to bring salvation. And now God's servant is here. Jesus is here. He's announcing the hour has come. The feast is at hand. And those who had been invited, who knew the law and the prophets, the religious leaders of Israel, are rejecting the second invitation. This is a word of warning. 
This is a word of warning to us about the excuses that we use to avoid the call of Jesus in our lives. Because the same call comes to us. The time has come. In Christ and in his cross, God has opened up the way for forgiveness, for new life, for redemption. Are we in? Are you in? What was their reason for rejecting the invitation? Probably had something to do with Jesus totally letting down all their expectations of, of what a Messiah was. He can't possibly be God's Messiah. He's hanging out with all the wrong kinds of people, with sinners, dirty people. He heals people on the Sabbath. He's way too close to the poor and to the nobodies. He doesn't conform to our rules and customs. He doesn't fit with our definition of what the Savior looks like. And then on a more threatening level, personally for them, you see, they had made religion into a pecking order to climb. They're seeking status and power. Who's got the best seat at the table? They had used something good and twisted it to be a tool for their own advancement at the expense of others, at the expense of justice and love and the true worship of God. Now, this isn't a critique aimed only at Judaism. It's aimed at all self-centered religiosity. It's aimed at us who are churchgoers and maybe lifelong Christians. This is something that we are vulnerable to. David Foster Wallace, an American writer, once told the story of two young fish swimming along. And as they're swimming along, they meet an older fish, and the older fish uh, says to them, Good morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish continue on their way, and after a moment of thinking, they pause and look at each other and say, What the deuce is water? You see, this little story shows just how easily we can miss the most important fact about our existence because it's so obvious. And the danger of swimming in the religious environment your whole life is that you can miss what it's really all about. The most obvious thing about Christianity is not about sitting in a pew. It's not about wearing the right clothes, saying the right things, looking and being a nice person. It's about Christ himself and the question of your allegiance to him. Have you personally given your allegiance to Jesus and said, yes, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to respond to your invitation to, to come to the feast. And this is a warning. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. See, the most dangerous thing for us as Christians is to reject Christ because he, he doesn't fit in with our idea of what Christianity is supposed to be. When Jesus arrives at your house and says to you, it's time, come follow me. And then you see him touching people who are dirty and you see him healing them and you see him welcoming sinners and, and prostitutes. And he starts saying strange things like whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. You see, when the real crucified and risen Lord Jesus addresses us and calls us to follow and we see what he's really like as he's presented to us in the gospel, 
what is our response? See, you might be familiar with Jesus, but you're not a follower. You might admire Jesus and his teaching, but are you a disciple? Have you made it the aim of your life to become like him and to obey him? And let me tell you, following Jesus doesn't really feel like the safe, familiar, comfortable, bubble-wrapped environment we'd like to create for ourselves. To follow Jesus is to abandon the little kingdoms we're trying to build for ourselves. To, to abandon the dream of, of you know, my name flashing in neon lights and people singing my praises and saying how great you are. It's, it's to abandon building my own kingdom and, and to live to see God's kingdom breaking into the world. It, it's to live for his glory. It's to live for, for his name to be praised and, and to give my life to that end. You see, at a certain point, Jesus breaks through the self-centeredness of religiosity and he shows us that it's not actually about us. It's about him. And it's about reaching people with his love and with the good news of his kingdom. That's the warning in this text. When the time came, those who had been invited didn't come. They reject the host, they insult him. And check it out in the text. He is understandably angry. In verse 21. But look at his response. He's angry, but, but he doesn't respond the way you and I might respond. He doesn't say, okay, shut it down. Fine, we're going to give up on this thing. Nobody's going to invite it, right? He's not spiteful like that. His response is a response of grace. This parable has a clear word of grace for us. He doesn't close up shop. He does the opposite. He blows the party wide open. He sends his servant out to the streets and alleys to gather the poor, the lame, the blind, and the crippled. And then when that's done, it says there's still room. And the master sends the servant to the country lanes to compel to compel more people to come in. Why? So that my house, he says in verse 23, will be full. He wants a full house. That's God's desire. He wants the feast of the kingdom to be full. He wants people to respond and to come to his invitation. Now, as we look at this word of grace, there's a couple things I want you to note about the grace of God here. First of all, it's free. It's totally free in the sense that it can't be earned and it can't be paid back. It's repeated that this particular group of people, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, cannot repay the host. They don't, they don't have the means to, to pay to get in or to, to repay the host for his favor. They have no status. They have no influence. They have no resources. This is not the typical understanding that people have of heaven. If you ask people today, you know, who do you think is going to be sitting with God at table in heaven? And they're going to think, oh, 
you know, religious types, people who have it together, people who have, you know, accrued religious status and standing, people who say their prayers and wear nice clothes, people like the Pharisees, people like the guy who said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, right? But that's not the way of the kingdom. You see, in the kingdom, the only status that matters is the status of Christ. Because even our best intentions at improving ourselves and becoming better people, even our best intentions at, at being good churchgoers, it's tainted with sin. It's tainted with selfishness. The moment we're, we're, we're doing something that God wants us to do, this thought sneaks in the back of our mind and we say, hmm, I wonder who's going to notice. I wonder what kind of praise I'm going to get. Look at me. We are sinful. Christians, non-Christians, churchgoers, non-church, we're all sinful. We're all in the same boat. And the only one whose status matters is the status of Christ. We can clean up the outside of the cup all we want, but we can't clean the inside. Only God can do that. We're all filthy on the inside, apart from his saving work in our lives. You see, the reason the outsiders and the cast-offs and the dirty people are welcomed is because they, they get it. They know, I, I don't cut it. Only Jesus does. His status is the only status that matters. And that's why anyone can come as long as they respond to his call and they turn away from evil and the old life and, and put their trust in him. That's the way of the kingdom. We enter based on God's grace alone, and it's free. We can't earn it. We can't repay it. Second of all, God's grace is relentless. Just look at the relentlessness of the host. He tells his servant in verse 23, you know, first of all, there's, there's go out into the town and the alleys and get people. Okay, we still have more. Okay, go out to the countryside and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in. This, this isn't about forcing people at gunpoint or beating them over the head until they come in. Compel here means a strong insistence. Why do they need to be compelled? Because they might not even know the host. They might not even know that he's holding a party. They might, they might not believe that the host even wants them there. I mean, why on earth would someone invite outcasts and strangers, the, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, to a banquet? doesn't make any sense. Why would someone share their meat and their wine with us? Why would someone want to spend time with us? Compel means to insist that they respond and that they come. And how many people in our city need to be compelled in that way to say, God wants you at the table. You're not too dirty. Your life isn't too messy. God hasn't written you off. You, you might wonder why on earth would he want me? That's exactly the point. It's his grace. He wants you at the table. Compel them. God's grace is relentless. Third, God's grace is joyful. This is one of the most obvious things about the, the image of a banquet. And we can't miss it. A banquet is joyful. It's a celebration. And, and this parable speaks so clearly against notions of a, a gloomy and dreary Christianity. William Barclay said, a gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. To be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, to, to be devout, isn't an austere, somber thing. It's joyful. 
It's colorful. And, and the Christian doctrine of sin, which is essential, which we hold to, doesn't actually do away with the goodness of creation. It doesn't mean that all creation is bad. It means it, it, it's, it's been twisted and it's going to be redeemed. But Jesus wants us to actually unlearn uh, the notions of rigid and joyless Christianity that may maybe you grew up with, uh, maybe that you've seen in others and it's just totally turned you off. Uh, Jesus wants us to celebrate God's presence and the gifts he's given us, the gifts of friendship, the gifts of communion, the gifts of peace, the gifts of fellowship, the gifts of beauty. God's grace is joyful and leads us in, a, in this joyful procession. So what? Where does this leave us now? We're going to wrap up in a few minutes and we're going to go into the rest of our weeks. How is this text sending us into this week? It's sending us into the mission of the servant. Look in verse 23. The master tells his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full Notice that it's an unfinished task. Is there any indication in the text that the servant has done this? No. It's an unfinished task. It's, it's left hanging there for us to pick up and to join in and to carry out this last command. You see, we live in a unique moment right now. This pandemic has presented us with the opportunity as a church to think through what it is to be a church and how we can f effectively fulfill our mission in this new season. And as we figure that out, uh, that out, as we take time to pause and listen to God as he leads us, our goal is not to just throw ourselves into busyness, is, is not to just get busy again with all kinds of religious activities and to fill our calendars. Our goal is to focus our limited time, energy, and resources on ministry that will lead to gospel proclamation and life transformation. It's to focus on ministry that is going to send us into mission of, of going out and compelling people to, to come into the feast. This time is a fresh invitation to follow Christ joyfully into his mission. And this morning I hear the invitation of grace to us as the people of God um, to live with a keen awareness of God's grace towards us, of, of the sufficiency of Christ for our every need, uh, of uh, the status of Christ which he gives to us as we put our faith in him and follow him. Um, to really rest in our identity in Christ and, and from that place to go out and to compel people um, convincingly to say, this is what God has done in my life. He can do it in your life. You're not too far gone. You're not too lost. Your life isn't too messy and to, and to compel them to enter in. Tim Keller once said that when the Spirit enables us to understand what Christ has done for us, the result is a life poured out in deeds of justice and compassion for the poor. You see, as we follow Jesus, he is going to lead us into contact with hurting, lost, and broken people. 
And we are oftentimes those hurting, lost, and broken people. And we need to be ready to not only welcome them in, but, but to go out to them. Uh, we need to abandon all, any kind of religiosity that would uh, obscure a clear vision of Christ and what he's called us to. You see, it's the people who aren't yet part of our family that we're called to reach. It's the lost who need finding. And yes, we need to care for the, those who are found. We need to shepherd the flock, but not a kind of shepherding to make us comfortable Christians who, who can just uh, cruise the rest of our days on autopilot. True shepherding, the, the kind of shepherding that Jesus displayed in his ministry and the kind of shepherding that he is continuing to do among us is the kind of shepherding that makes us mature disciples of Jesus who see the cost of discipleship and who enter into it, who then start to display the radiance of the gospel and the radical generosity of God. As we follow Jesus, that's where he wants us to go. He wants us to follow him on his mission to go out and compel people, to share his good news. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, as we hear you addressing us this morning, I pray that we would respond to you with faith and obedience. Lord Jesus, what you ask of us is uh, big. And Lord, we place our trust in you that what you call us to, you also will empower uh, us to accomplish. And indeed that we will be able to say that it wasn't us who did these things, but you through us, working through us in the power of your spirit. Lord, where we have been blinded by religiosity, would you open our eyes, would you remove the shrouds to see you clearly and to welcome you and to respond to your invitation. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak your word of grace deeply into our hearts, the word of your sufficiency, of your love, of the atoning sacrifice that you offered, which presents us completely clean and completely beloved in the presence of our Father. From this place, would we be sent out by you to worship you in all things, to reach others with your love, with your grace, and with your compassion. Make us such a people, Lord. We pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.